Great. I'd love just to introduce Dave to you this morning. For those of you that are maybe new or haven't heard Dave preach before, Dave and his wife Hazel um, have been part of our church for oh, about nine years now. And um, they have had a history of being part of leading churches and have got loads of kind of wisdom and experience in that area. Um, and we are so excited. They are part of our pastoral team here. Um, Hazel heads up all of our Sozo prayer ministry for the church. And Dave is part of our preaching team, helping plan our preaching. And for those of you that know Dave will know that he is an amazingly gifted uh, man who loves the Bible. He loves teaching. He loves the Bible. He loves scripture and authentically kind of demonstrates what it looks like to live a life of the scriptures as so as, as I've seen in you Dave um, so we're so excited to have him preach here this morning um, I said he preached from time to time so you'll see him from every now and again and I'm sure those of you that know him will be looking forward to him carrying on our Nehemiah series can I just pray for you Dave as we start so Lord just thank you for Dave thank you for the words he's prepared and I pray you would take them that they would be food to our soul this morning just thank you Jesus amen good morning, good morning. happy Father's Day fathers um, I, w- I will do what I was going to do. I'm off track already. This is very dangerous. <laughs> I had a Father's Day card from my daughter, Chloe, this morning. And um, I won't say everything that was in it, but she just included a little episode from my granddaughter, Lois, who's three years old, who asked her mum, Mum, what are we doing today? And mum said, we're going to Ikea. This was kind of a couple of days ago. And uh, and then Lois replied, well, if I was you, mum, I'd go on the train for a long journey every day to go and see grandma and granddad. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's what Father's Day is all about, getting things like that, isn't it? Well, today we're carrying on <laughs> in the book of uh, Nehemiah. And uh, I've got some PowerPoints for you just to help you keep on track. Um, today and to help me keep on track as well for that matter okay so and today our subject is keeping faith in face of opposition now the period of the exile of the Israelites from their own land at this point in the whole of the history of the Old Testament is coming coming to an end some of the people of God have already returned to Jerusalem and have re-established temple worship in the land that they were exiled from. But then Nehemiah, and we heard about this a few weeks ago, the cupbearer to the king, heard that the walls of the city, although the temple is re-established, the walls of the city still in ruins. His heart is broken by what he hears. And as he prays about the news he has heard, he realizes he has to do something about it. In an audience with the king, he's granted permission to go to Jerusalem himself and take charge of the rebuilding process, and is given by the king the resources to do so. When he arrives in the city, he personally inspects the state of the walls and envisions the people to begin the enormous task of rebuilding them. Each tribe and family is allotted its particular part of the wall to work on, and the process of rebuilding begins. And uh, last week, James spoke about that long list of the names of the people uh, who headed up the families, each father of each family that was involved in that building process. Everyone was involved somehow. And, um, and it's the same situation for us as we're seeking to rebuild our own walls in this city. Now we come to chapter 4. 
And I want to read to you uh, just the first six verses of this chapter. Now, there's a heck of a lot in this chapter. There's a whole sermon series potentially just in this one chapter alone. I've got about 20 minutes to try and cover it. So I'm going to do my best. But let's read the first six verses just to get a flavor of what's going on. Okay, so when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? And Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What they're building, even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in the land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight. For they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. That's Nehemiah himself praying to God as a result of what he has heard Sanballat has been saying. And then it says in verse 6, And so we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. For us, rebuilding the walls is not just about making this city of Cardiff a better place for people to live on the earth. It's about extending kingdom influence by providing access for people to find salvation. That wonderful story that we heard of an Iranian refugee is a very, very good example of that. And to provide a place for people to come into a place of being able to worship God freely and fully. And Nehemiah is a superb model of leadership in that process. He's a primary source of vision from God. Uh, First of all, he gathers resources, develops a strategy for building, but he also brings motivation and security. And underpinning all that he does is an amazing life of prayer. But there's another figure here in this story, a local king named Sanballat. Now, Sanballat, for us, is a type of the enemy, Satan. I sometimes refer to him as Satan Balat. (laughs) And you can kind of think of him like that as well, if you like, because how he behaves is typical of the way in which we find ourselves attacked by the enemy in the building that we ourselves are involved with, because Sanbala is having his strings pulled by the enemy. In seeking to extend the kingdom of God here in Cardiff, we have that same enemy. We war not against flesh and blood but against spiritual forces that come against the establishing of God's kingdom through his people. And um, hopefully there's a PowerPoint slide come up. Yes. Okay. As J.B. Phillips put it in his translation of the New Testament, we are up against the unseen power that controls this dark world and spiritual agents from the very headquarters of evil. That is a superb paraphrase of Ephesians 6 verse 12. Now, the temple itself, as I've already said, at this stage has already been built and it's functioning as a location for the worship of God to continue. Now, Sanballat is unconcerned about that. 
He's not worried about a bunch of God's people having a great time worshipping God, just as Satan is not worried about Christians having a nice time singing songs in a building. Yeah? However, the establishing of a walled city around the temple to protect it and to provide a place for people to find security and to worship God in that place is tantamount to establishing a different kingdom, God's kingdom, one which challenges his own authority and power. It's not something Sanballat or Satan Balat, if you like, can accept. And it's the same for us today. The more visible and noticeable the kingdom of God becomes, the more the enemy opposes it. And in chapter 4, we see an increasing intensity as the chapter goes by in the attack from Sanballat and his allies upon what the people of God are doing. Now, I want to go through some of the strategies that Sanballat uses, which are applicable, as I say, to us today, because our enemy uses exactly the same things. The very first example of this we actually see in chapter 2, verse 12, and... Um, where we read, but when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? Who do you think you are, in other words? This attack is on the very identity of the people of God as those called by him. And it involves undermining the sense of calling that they have to rebuild the city. It's a form of attack that can be unnerving and disabling if it succeeds in getting the people of God to lose sight of who they are as the sons and daughters of God. And then the next form of attack we find in this particular chapter in verse 2 is mockery and ridicule. Sanbala in verse 2, in the hearing of at least some of the Jews, says, what are these feeble Jews doing? Can they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? And his sidekick Tobias comes in with his little, even a fox, walking on the walls will cause it to fall down. In other words, here they're saying, what do you think you can do with the limited skills and resources that you've got? It's ridicule and mockery. The attack here is not so much on identity as on gifting and ability and on the people's confidence to have the resources in themselves to be able to accomplish the task. The next ramped up level of attack from Sanballat is direct attack. In verse 7, we read, when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs and the Ammonites and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. Now, for us, sometimes, although not always, sickness, things breaking down, things going wrong, Things not working out immediately before we're about to have a meeting, the PA not working, whatever it is, those may be fairly minor things, but they're often the enemy seeking to hinder the work of the kingdom, a direct attack on what's going on. And it's something that probably happens with us. How many of you have an argument on a Sunday morning? Husbands and wives, you know, on the way to church on a Sunday. Sorry, Mark, I'm not particularly looking at you. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, the enemy trying to come in and put us off our God in a, in a minor way, but sometimes attacks can be far, far more significant, serious illness, and even death can come about as a result of the attack of the enemy. And then the next way that we see Sanballat attacking is undermining from within. We read of grumbling, fear, and criticism on the part of God's people in verses 10 to 12. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said the strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. And also our enemies said before they know it, they'll see us, or see us, we'll be right there among them, and we'll kill them and put an end to their work. And then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Now, the interesting detail here is that verse 10 is in the form of a song in Hebrew. The strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. And it is suggested in the commentaries that this is a song that was actually being sung by some of the people who were rebuilding the walls at this time as they became intimidated by the threat of attack from Sanballat and, and company. Yeah, It's, if you like, an equivalent of nobody knows the trouble I see. Yeah? Sorry about that. I'm not a very good singer, as you can hear. But look, self-pity, exhaustion, difficulty can bring discouragement, and that opens the door to grumbling, fear, and criticism. But then, and this is what I really want to concentrate on as much as I've, I can in the last 10 minutes or so that I've got left, is how Nehemiah and the people of God respond to those attacks. And in this, we see the, the way in which spiritual warfare is important for a community that is seeking to extend and build the kingdom of God in a place as we are seeking to do. And the first way in which Nehemiah responds is by declaring truth, declaring the truth of God. In chapter 2, in response to that attack on identity, it says that he answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding, and so on. The God of heaven will give us success. The power of declaration the power of, of speaking out the truth of God as an expression of faith in the face of discouragement. And we see it in Jesus as well, don't we? When Jesus was faced with Satan in the wilderness, even before he begins his ministry, he does exactly the same thing as Nehemiah by declaring God's truth. He says to the enemy, it is written, and so on. Three times over that happens. You know, when we, when you are faced with condemnation, declare the truth of what God has done for you in Jesus and what he now calls you to be and to do. We sang this morning, death is defeated, the king is alive. And it's that kind of declaration, it's singing that kind of song rather than the nobody knows the trouble I see song that actually brings us into a place of assurance and confidence in God that he is able to deal with and knows about and, able, and is able to deal with the strategies of the enemy. So declaring the truth, Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? 
yeah, maybe we need to kind of write that out and, you know, stick it on our fridges or something. If God can be for us, if God is for us, who can be against us? And then the next one is in Nehemiah's own response is that personal prayer. Personal prayer covering what he himself is responsible for in the process of rebuilding and leaving God be the one who deals with the enemy. We read it out, verse 4, Hear us, O God, for we are despised, and so on. And the outcome, so we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all of their heart. You know, one of the biggest battles in the Christian life is maintaining a personal prayer life. And we, I know that from my own experience. You know, there have been times in my life when my, my personal prayer life has been extraordinary, amazing. There have been other long stretches sometimes when it's been virtually non-existent. And it's a battle sometimes to maintain that position of consistency in praying for those things for which you have responsibility your marriage, your family, um, your work, uh, the role that you have in the church, the outreach that you are seeking to express to other people and so on. We have a responsibility. And if you're struggling with that aspect of, of your life, then why not arrange to pray regularly with something else? Two, uh, three, there's a verse in the Bible which just immediately pops into my mind now. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. When two people get together to pray and Jesus is there with them, that's something that is indestructible. Yeah. So I would just commend that. If you're struggling in your prayer life, see, arrange to pray regularly, maybe just once a week or something with somebody else. And that can give you a foothold into establishing prayer for yourself. And then the next thing is being watchful. Being watchful of the enemy. Yes, 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And 2 Corinthians 2.11, Paul says, We are not unaware of the devil's schemes. Be aware of the way that um, the enemy can sometimes try to undermine um, what we're engaged with, what we're involved with. And then secondly, under this heading, look out for yourself. Guard your own mind, your heart. Look after your body and be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Let your spirit be being renewed with God's spirit continually. Look out for yourself. And then thirdly, in the, under this heading, look out for one another. Bring encouragement when it's needed to those who are downhearted, distressed and discouraged. And I know, I know actually that is something that we're pretty strong on here. In Vineyard, and I've been personal. I don't want to say this as a personal bit of bit of testimony, really. That uh, I've been on the receiving end of that kind of watchfulness on the part of others, and there've been a number. Of, uh, some of you, or a lot of you, will know that Hazel and I have been through a pretty difficult time uh, in the last six months as a result of losing uh, one of our grandchildren. And um, I say now that we've got eleven grandchildren. One of them is already in heaven with Jesus. You know, it's easy to say that now, but actually it's been tough. But there have been people here in this congregation who've kind of seen me and have recognized that actually I'm sort of struggling and uh, have come and just, you know, I've not even come up for prayer, not even been able to do that when I probably ought to have done. But people have, have found me out and come, and come and put an arm around me and said, David, I can see you struggling. Can I pray for you? 
And, uh, and you know who you are if you're here this morning, those of you who have done that. And I just want to commend you for doing that and thank you for doing that. And some of you have done that with tears, which for me has been deeply moving in the, and greatly strengthening as well that there's someone else there who at least understands that I'm going through something, even if they don't know what it is, you know, don't experience what it is I'm going through. And then the next thing is keeping God-centred. Keeping God-centred. On Friday, I, um, I travelled to um, Ebbsfleet in Kent to attend a funeral. And the funeral was of a, a dear friend and my former pastor, Richard Hayden Knoll, who died after uh, a, an amazing godly man, a man of the word, man who taught me a lot about how to handle the word of God. And you're benefiting from some of that maybe now. It's Richard I learned it from. He suffered with Parkinson's disease for 17 long years, and he finally died last week. Um, and I went to his funeral. And I, as I was going there, I was thinking all the, all the way on the train of the different things that I learned from him. And the one thing that stands out more than anything else, and I think I've probably mentioned this before, once when we went to have a very, very difficult pastoral meeting with somebody in the church who was seriously struggling, and we heard a lot of very difficult stuff that evening and didn't really know how to answer it. And as we came away late in the evening, Richard turned to me and he said, just as we were about to go our separate ways, he said to me, just quite simply, having prayed, we, you know, we prayed first. And then he said this, David, keep yourself in the love of God. Keep yourself in the love of God. Keeping God centered. I never, ever heard that man say anything negative or bad about that person that we had struggled with that evening. He kept himself, he knew what it was to keep himself in the love of God. Keep yourself in that place. Be sure of your identity, your calling, your gifting, the provision and protection that is yours in Jesus and of the love that he has for you more than anything else. And Romans 8, 31, if God is for us again, who can be against us? And then... And I'm coming towards an end. I'm going to carry on for a couple more minutes praying together because I think what I'm about to say is perhaps the most important thing of all. Is that okay? And the next one is praying together. Okay, so we've had personal prayer. Now we're praying together, being ready to fight on one another's behalf, not with a sword and spear, but with a weapon of prayer. And the whole of this chapter is about spiritual warfare in this sense. And we see that there are three levels of prayer in the passage. I've already spoken about personal prayer in the example of Nehemiah. Uh, and there's also prayer for each other. And I guess really what I said about the guys in the church sometimes praying for me is an example of that. But this is what it says in verses 13 and 14. Uh, how Nehemiah tackled that level, that next stepped up level of uh, attack from Sanballat. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points in the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears and bows. And after I looked things over, I stood up and I said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, for your sons, your daughters, your wives and your homes. So this is about prayer for one another. 
Just want to encourage you strongly, make the most of opportunities for, of prayer ministry here on a Sunday morning. An opportunity for people, somebody else or people to get with you and pray with you about some of the battles and issues that you yourself are facing. Prayer for one another is a strong characteristic of our small group life. You know, the small group I'm in, I want to commend it for the way that we cover one another and pray for one another in those meetings. It's, it's wonderful uh, to do that. Yeah, And if you're not in a small group where you're not able to experience that level of prayer cover for some of the issues and struggles that you face, you're actually in a vulnerable place. I want to exhort you, if you're not in a small group, get in one. Because there you're in a place of security with others who are able to pray with you and to, and to cover you. The people... Rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem were working on the wall and carrying their weapons at the, at the same time. They were ready to pray. They were ready to fight, if you like, at the, at the slightest uh, time of need. And then finally, sounding the trumpet, I've called it. So we've had personal prayer. We've had, we've had corporate prayer in the sense of praying for one another and here I think we see a level of prayer going on in this story which goes beyond that again. And I think it's, this is something I want to share which I believe is something that we need to get hold of perhaps as a church. At a time when with planting out congregations and there will be more of those in the future no doubt, both in the city and maybe later on as well beyond the city, increasingly we are getting extended on the wall, if you like. The builders are further and further apart from one another as that wall is being built. And uh, Nehemiah in his situation recognised that and he appointed a trumpet blower to stand with him at all times, to sound the trumpet at those times when attack was threatened on a particular part of the wall, to call all the people together to defend the area that was coming under attack. Um, there's, a, there's a new, there's I think another level of corporate prayer. I'm, I haven't got time to read the passage through. I strongly recommend you read the whole chapter through yourself later on. But verses 16 down to 23 describe this process in some detail. And uh, the sounding of the trumpet represented a call to the people all to come together in time of great need, in times of intensified attack from the enemy, to defend the work of building the kingdom. Just a brief story here, and um, I fear I, I will then need to finish. There was something else I was going to do, but I haven't got time to do that, although I will commend a book to you, and you can maybe read it for yourself. There was a time when we were seeking, when I was leading a church in Lowestoft, we were seeking to obtain a building as a visible base to work out from, having hired schools and, and so on as meeting places for a number of years. And we had God speak very, very, very clearly about one particular building to the extent that we knew that was the place that God had for us. I won't go into all the detail, but the detail was extraordinary. There was a prophecy. Well, I'll give you one detail, just an example. There was a prophecy that said that God is going to cause you, and I can still remember the wording now, and this is donkey's years ago. This was, oh, yeah, a long time ago, more than 20 years ago. Um, I'm going to cause you and enable you 
to find a building. It's a building in solid ground and, and so on. It went on. And somehow this prophecy went, this building has got a connection with milk. Now that's a bit specific, isn't it? Just a bit. And he said, I'm not sure whether that means it's a school or whether literally it's something like a dairy or somewhere that's associated with producing milk. Now that is, how many buildings are there in a place that have got that kind of connection? Yeah? And we found this building. We saw this building. It was a, it, we, we went into it, the, the leadership team, we went into it and we thought, it just felt right. It was an old garage. It needed a heck of a lot doing to it. But we, we felt so strongly about it, we called the church together that next Sunday evening. We shared the prophecy. We shared uh, the detail about the building, and we prayed. And then later that evening, one of the older ladies in the church rang me up and said, David, you know that building you were talking about tonight? That's on Haddenham Road, isn't it? Well, Mr. Haddenham was the farmer who had a farm up there, and on his farm he had a dairy, which produced all the milk for the whole of the south of Lowestoft. When she said that, I knew that. I knew, but I knew, but I knew. That was our building. Well, we had to go. We had to... Uh, extraordinary story. We had to find... I don't know. We couldn't... Uh, we had to get a mortgage. We needed to put a deposit down of something like £70,000 to obtain this mortgage. We were a poor church. There were only 20 people in the church with jobs and the most well-paid were teachers and nurses. That was our church. And um, we took up an offering. We got something like £50,000 uh, on one Sunday. And I had a phone call that same afternoon. Somebody else in another church saying, we'll lend you the other we'll lend you £20,000. So we had the money in a week. And um, that made me feel, well, yeah, this is the place. It underlined, this is the right place for us even more. And then we hit a problem. Then the enemy started getting seriously worried. Yeah? We had the word from God. We had the resources. We had the determination. But we had to deal with the council. We had to get a reversal of planning permission on this building. Yeah? And the planning department, we know for a fact, were dead set against us turning a building on a commercial estate into a place of worship. It, they wouldn't get the rates out of it that they would do if it was a commercial property, you see. So we sounded the trumpet. We got the church to pray. Some of our church members went to the council meeting where the... Um, planning officer was presenting the case against us having a change of use on this building and they prayed in the gallery and they watched in amazement as the man from the planning department couldn't get his projector to work to show his slides his notes got all in the wrong order and he dropped some of them on the floor and he ummed and ahed and spluttered and it was a terribly weak presentation and in the end, there was a vote in the end of the council meeting and the vote was unanimous in favour of us being granted change of use for this building. And we got that building and it's still being used today. Battle, sounding the trumpet, calling the church together to pray strongly, corporately, all together in order that even when the work is extended on the walls and there are multiple congregations operating, there's still that unity of prayer that brings about victory and breakthrough and overcomes the strategies of the enemy against the building of the kingdom of God. Amen? Let's stand.